Hey, glad you're here. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll dig into scripture. I think we got everybody divorced last week, if I remember right. So uh, now we've got to rebuild our marriages. So here we go. Let's, let's pray and we'll dig back in. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we just simply come before you tonight. We came here because we wanted to learn your word better. So I'm just going to ask you that you would help guide me, help me to be absolutely true to Scripture, help, help me not to interject Lynn, but instead to divide your word accurately and true. God, I ask that you'd keep our minds and our hearts open, that we'd be willing to say, look, I, I, that may not be what my Sunday school teacher told me, it may not be, even be what my parents taught me or what I've always believed, but I'm, I'm here to line my life up with the truth of what God teaches, and, and so therefore I'm willing to be challenged, I'm willing to ask my questions, and I'm... I'm willing to reconsider as long as I line up with the truth of the Bible. So God, teach us tonight, guide us tonight, change us tonight, because we were willing to take this time. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, I believe we are somewhere right around verse 17. Does that sound right to everybody? You're okay with that? Okay. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 17, here's what it says. We just finished the whole divorce thing. All right, so let me just ask real quick, without, what are the two reasons biblically for a person to, re, to go through a divorce? What are they? Abandonment by a non-believer. Okay, marital adultery, marital infidelity. And here's what you need to hear, guys. Scripture says in that moment, then, the innocent party, the innocent party is not bound. The innocent party is free to choose to remarry after that point, okay? We said there's some other circumstances that we aren't sure why God didn't put him on the list. And it may be in those circumstances that a Christian would choose to separate and say, look, I just choose to be single and not live in a home with somebody who's going to behave the way you're behaving. Remember, we had a whole list. And in that case, you've got to be ready to say, look, I'd rather be alone than live in a home like that. But you cannot be the person divorcing. Now, if they decide after that to go have another relationship or violate, then that's their thing. But you, as the believer, cannot initiate that. You cannot do that. Okay? And there's where we came to. So now we get to verse 17, and it says, Nevertheless, each one of us should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. And if we had gotten to this last week, it'd probably make a little more sense, could be a little bit more in context. So I'll just help us get there. What I think he's saying, what he's, he's doing right there is simply this. In the church, you and I have a lot of stuff that comes because we're constantly picking up people at any stage in their life. Who knows what the history is and, and what did I do and what type of decisions did I make before I came to Jesus? And, and the reality is, let's just be honest. Most of us, before we came to Jesus, made a lot of not-so-great decisions. Uh, that's just part of not knowing the Lord and, and not understanding the Scripture and what to do. So what do you do with that? What do you do if, hey, I've been married five times before I got here, and three of them were unbiblical, and when I got divorced, I mean, what do, you, what, you know, do I try to go back and fix all those? What do I do now? Because I'm a believer now, but actually the person I'm divorced from, they never did know Jesus. I, I mean, this just, this just becomes a web you understand that? 
did this, this, get. And here's what I think he's saying then in this passage. Okay, so let's go back, verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place of life that God assigned to him and to which God called him. And I think he's simply saying this. Look, when you come to Christ, let's just start from there. Let's just start from there. Let's not send believers back to try to rebuild marriages with unbelievers. Let's not... When I came to Christ, that's the place where God called me. That's the place I was in life. Let's just start from there. And from that day forward, let's simply say, I will choose from this day forward to honor God with now with all of my future decisions. Because now that I know Jesus, now that I have a relationship with God, starting from there, I will live in obedience and compliance with what I just learned and what I just got taught. Does that make sense? Sort of. Okay, all right, okay. Questions? Okay, you guys are being easy. All right, so, here we go, verse... All right, finishing verse 17. This is the rule that I lay down in all of the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not then become circumcised. Was a man uncircumcised, uh, then he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation in which he was when God called him. Okay? So, right back to this very same principle that we just laid out. Because within, and and here's what Paul does, he uses a reference in this moment. He says, look, this is the same thing that's happening with this whole debate about circumcision that's happening in the church. Why was this a big deal in the church? Why was circumcision a debate in the church, especially in the early church? Uh, because most of the new believers were Jewish. Okay. And they, were, you know, they followed their customs, which included circumcision. Okay. So think about this. In the early church, the truth is the, 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 the first wave of Christianity happened within Judaism. Where was Jesus' ministry primarily to? Jews. Matter of fact, think about this because it's a kind of a weird moment. Uh, remember, uh, there was a moment in which a Gentile woman came to Jesus and said to Jesus, look, Jesus, would you heal me? And Jesus said, I'm not ministering to Gentiles right now. I'm ministering to Jews. And remember what her response was? Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So she was saying, look, 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 I, I get it. But at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm just asking for scraps here, Jesus. Would you consider that? So the primary ministry of Jesus was directed first at the Jews. Why was that? Why was his ministry directed first to the Jews? Huh? He was Messiah. Okay. Who were the Jews? God's chosen people. And they're going to get first crack at the Messiah. They're going to get first shot at the Messiah. The problem is... When it all plays out, the vast majority of the Jews turned down Messiah. Isn't that interesting? The truth is the door opened for you and me because the Jews ultimately rejected Messiah. Matter of fact, it's midway through Paul's ministry and Paul says, Hey, God, God didn't call me to minister to the Jews. Matter of fact, he called me now to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that got the Jews pretty angry. Okay? So you've got to remember, early church... There's, there's this dispute going on. So in the early church, matter of fact, through the earliest part of Paul's ministry, when he went to a town, guess where he held his first Bible studies? Every time he went to a town. 
Anybody know? Huh? In the synagogue. So even Paul, early on in his ministry, when he went to a town, the first place he went to have a Bible study wasn't at the Roman temple, wasn't at the Greek temple. He'd go into the Jewish synagogue and he'd begin to debate Old Testament scripture and try to prove to them that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecy and he was Messiah. He ended up getting stoned a bunch of times. He ended up getting beat up a bunch of times for it. But he, he had, in early in ministry, always started with the Jews first, and then he would go win the Gentiles within the community. Later on in ministry, you get to him saying, just goes, I'm so done arguing with Jews. I'm, I'm just going to the Gentiles. It's just what I'm going to do. So think about this now. Early church, tons of Jews in the church, especially in the church in Jerusalem. And now the struggle is, okay, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and he is, that is the right answer. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Then what do we do with all of the ritual? What do we do with all of the customs that we've had up until now? Do we still keep doing those as a way of honoring God? And this was debate. This was huge debate within the church. So what are some of the things the Jews were doing up until then to honor God? Huh? Not eating pork. Okay, so there's all sorts of dietary Sacrifice. What else? Cleansing. Sabbath. Circumcision. Okay? So, pretty good list. And so, now the debate becomes within the Jewish community, especially the community of Jewish believers, do these things still all apply? As Jewish Christians, do we still keep all of these within our lives? And and stop and think about this. If this is what you've done since the time you were a child, this is, this is hard for you to consider that maybe you don't do all these things anymore. That, that maybe, maybe that is done with, maybe that's old, maybe that's passed away, and this Christian thing now is this, but it's different. And this is hard. This is hard for them to process. It's hard for them to get to, I can eat pork all of a sudden and it's okay. I mean, it's never been okay. And and think about this. I have been told every year I've got to go to the temple and I've got to sacrifice. And if I don't, God will not, will not wink at my sin. And now I don't go sacrifice. And this is hard. This is hard for them to get to. Let me ask you the question. Should we be doing all those things today? Should we be participating in those things? Yes, no. No. Okay, that's a good Gentile answer. <clears throat> why not? Why not? Why, 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 how is it that these things are suddenly null and void? Because we're not saved by works, but by the grace of God. Okay, and I'm there, and I totally agree with you, but let's just be honest. There are certain things as Christians that are works that we do not to save ourselves. Because we get that. It's not saving us. But we do them to be obedient. Baptism. I don't do baptism to save myself, but I do it as obedience. So why wouldn't these fall into the obedience category? 
Peter had a, a struggle with that, and, and then through his vision, he got the vision of the, all, all these foods, all these things are okay for you now. This is, this is different than, than it was before, in, in the past. Right. And you're right. I agree with you 100%. You're right. So you're saying, is that good? It, would it be good to do those things? Well, it's always good to honor God. So, okay, so, I mean, so let me go back because I, I love your answer. I want to be sure everybody heard it. Peter gets a vision. Remember Peter, Acts chapter, I want to say 9, 10, somewhere in there. He has the blanket lowered down and all of a sudden there's pigs and deer and all sorts of stuff he's not supposed to be eating. And, Jesus, and, and, and the voice of God says, get up, Peter, and eat. And he says, I'm not going to get up and eat. I, my entire life I've never eaten that. And God says, don't call what God has made unclean. Get up and eat. So you're right. I mean, apparently God seems to be saying these rules, so there's one dietary doesn't apply anymore. Why doesn't it apply anymore? Why, how was it that these things were all important Old Testament and suddenly in the New Testament, they don't matter anymore. That's, that's what their hearts are having a hard time. How is it possible? These were so important in the Old Testament. How is it? And then suddenly one day and they don't, they don't matter anymore. How's that possible, is what the Jews are asking. Okay, so microphone. Well, Jesus came to um, not abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so his life was the fulfillment of the law, which okay. eliminated, eliminated all these uh, rituals. Okay, so there's the answer. Okay, there's the answer. And Scripture simply says this. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And here's what you begin to discover as you start going back and you say, okay, so what, you know, hey, what, what was going on? What was, what was this all about? And why did God give them these rules? And here's the thing. You, suddenly you go, oh, my goodness. Every one of these rules in some way was a shadow, a promise, a clue that was supposed to help them recognize Messiah when Messiah came. Okay, so we t- I think we talked about this a little while back, but let, let's go there again real quick because it will help. When you get to uh, some of the feasts that the Jews were supposed to do, what were some of the feasts? Huh? Passover. What else? Huh? Okay, microphones. Feast of Tabernacles. What else? Atonement. Feast of Atonement. Booths. Booths. I'm trying to remember. I believe booths and tabernacles are tied together. What else? Any others you can think of off the top of your head? All right, so let's just play with these for a second. Okay? Feast of Passover. How does Feast of Passover work? Where did the Feast of Passover come from? Huh? Egypt. We're getting ready to leave Egypt. God's getting ready. He's doing the whole 10 plagues of Egypt thing. Last plague is what? Death of the firstborn. Wait, 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 wait. Death of the firstborn son. Hmm. And in the midst of this plague, God says, look, 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 look. You're going to get a pass. And here's how you're going to get a pass. You're going to take a lamb and you're going to kill that lamb. And when you kill that lamb, you're going to take his blood and you're going to apply it to your house. 
And as long as when the death angel comes, he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over you. And you get ready for this? And therefore I will not require life. You get the pass. When Jesus begins his ministry, opening of scripture, opening of the gospels, John the Baptist is baptizing. And here comes Jesus walking up to the baptismal waters. And John calls out publicly, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What should every Jew have thought about when they heard the Lamb? And you think about this. And God was going to offer His firstborn that none of us would die. They were pictures. They were clues of what the Messiah was going to be like. You get to the Day of Atonement. What did they have to do on the Day of Atonement? They had to take a lamb again. You're back to the lamb image again. And that that lamb had to die. That lamb had to shed his blood so that God would wink. He would close his eyes to your sin for a year. But the promise was that someday God would send the lamb who would end sacrifice. Why do you think Scripture over and over and over again calls Jesus the Lamb? Because the Jews were supposed to understand that what they had been practicing, all the rules, were suddenly being fulfilled. Fulfilled. What is the Feast of Tabernacles? The Feast of Tabernacles was the idea that they were to go out and live and allow the presence of God to come to them. What did Jesus do when he came to earth? He came and lived with us. He came to be with us. Feast of Tabernacles. And every single one of those rituals, everything they were doing was a shadow and a clue and a foreshadowing of what Messiah, so that when Messiah came, they would not miss him. They would not misunderstand because they had, they'd gone through the play acting of this thing all the way. But then here, here's why it doesn't matter. And he's saying, look, If you've got Messiah, you don't have to keep play acting anymore. You don't have to keep practicing for Messiah. You've got Messiah. And if you missed Messiah, you missed the point. Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. He came to be the Passover lamb. He came to be the lamb of atonement. He fulfilled the law, not abolished the law. Okay? But in the early church, they're still struggling. They're struggling because this is what we've always done. This is how we've always worshipped God. Okay? And before you and I condemn them too much, you you guys get, we do the same thing, right? Don't we? I, I wish I could tell you how many people I've gone, this is the song I always sing at church and we don't sing it here. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. It's okay. I, I, I love that you like the song, but it's not the make or breaker, right? You get that, right? How about some of us that were baptized as children? It's not biblically accurate. It's not what the Bible teaches about baptism. But let's just be honest. For some of us, that's a struggle to go. Wow, wait. You mean you mean I should maybe consider having believers baptism? I should maybe consider being baptized by a merciful. Well, yeah, and we go, wow. That's just that's just not how I was raised. That's not that's not what I always thought. That's not what the custom was of the church that I grew up in. So don't be so surprised that 
these Jews are struggling to move away from the old customs, to do this differently than how they've always done it. And one of the issues is circumcision. We have always circumcised our little boys. We have always done that as a sign that we were a Jew, as a sign that we were the promised people. And you're telling me that doesn't matter anymore? And Paul says, yeah, it doesn't. It was, it was a shadow. It was, it was a foretelling of what was going to come. And it, it just doesn't matter anymore. And he brings back this same principle. Okay, so let's read it again in that context. Verse 17 again, here we go. Nevertheless, each one of you should retain the place in life in which God has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all of the churches. What a man is already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. And was a man uncircumcised when he is called, then he doesn't necessarily have to get circumcised. So circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what really, really counts. Okay? So he's just saying, look, Here's where you were. Here's where God called you. From this day forward, let, forget tradition. Let's forget customs. Let's just do what God says. Let's just do what the Bible commands from this day forward. And let's be willing to leave the customs or whatever those are, the traditions of the past, mistakes of our past, in the past. And let's move forward from here with Jesus. You get the principle. Yes would be the appropriate answer. Okay. All right. Snoring would also be acceptable. Okay. All right. So back to... Okay. And this one's going to challenge us a little bit. Um, Verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was free man when he was called is Christ's slave. Okay, what, what, what's going on? First off, let me ask a question. Is this an endorsement of slavery? Are you sure? It says, if you find yourself when you came to Christ as a slave, don't seek to be freed. Is that an endorsement of slavery? Uh, not on slavery, but all we covered was the festivals. We didn't cover the dietary. We didn't cover huh. any of the other rituals. And I'm just trying to understand you know, what was some of the purpose behind uh, the other laws? Yeah. Okay, so if we go into all of it, we'll spend all night going that, and the rest of us will go to sleep. But just as a general principle, Feast of Unleavened Bread was just about keeping your life pure and holy. You took out that which was unclean. You chose and opted for that which was clean. The dietary ones were exactly that same deal. It was this idea of, I will live a set-apart life. I will not bring those things into my life I'll live only those things which are pure and honest and holy. So rather than those being as messianic in nature, they were more prescriptive in how to live. I'm not going to bring the dark customs of my neighbors into my life. I'm going to have only clean things in my life. Does that make sense on the deal? So each of them were prescriptive of now how do I live once Christ has come. Go ahead, I didn't hear the question. It's not. It's. It's. It, it is. It is still important now. But what you need to understand is the dietary principles in and of themselves were not what was making the difference. They. It's interesting how many times God offers you and me play acting, okay, as a way of teaching us a lesson. 
Okay? And that's really what he was doing in a lot of these Old Testament rituals and customs. He's having them play act the spiritual value. Okay? So I'm not going to eat those foods because each time I don't eat those foods, I am play acting the idea that I only do pure things in my life and I don't bring impure things into my life. I am play acting the ritual. Does that make sense? What is baptism, guys? Baptism is a play act. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if you don't know Jesus and, and you get baptized, you come up out of that water a wet person who doesn't know Jesus. And, and here's, here's what I'm just going to tell you. So we get all freaked out and weird and we go, oh, well, maybe the baptismal water is missing. No, it's not. It's Chandler water. And it tastes like Chandler water. I'm just, it's bad. I, I have an RO system. You have an RO system. Because Chandler water is bad. And there's nothing... Uh, that that water does. Matter of fact, it's really fun because early on when we first started Cornerstone, we didn't have anything to baptize in. And so we baptized in people's pools. And I'd be standing in the water and I'd say, okay, so look, here guys, there's nothing mystical about this. This is someone's pool. And there were children playing in here just before we got in. Okay? So you already know the water is not special. But but what we're going to do right now is a play act. We're going to play act what has happened in this person's heart. And when they stand in the water, easier to draw. When they stand in the water, they are saying, I believe Jesus lived. Okay? Not that he was a myth. Not that he was a fairy tale. Not not that he was, you know, he lived. He was real. He was alive. When we bury you under the water... Guess what? You're play acting. I believe he died. Because what was what was the counter story? Oh, he only swooned on the cross. He he only passed out on the cross. They, they only thought he was dead. So when he got up and walked around later, it was just because, you know, he was near death. And what's the testimony of baptism? No, 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 no. We're not no 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 no. He died. Okay? So buried with Christ in baptism, Scripture says. And what do you think it means when you get pulled up out of the water? I believe he rose again. And here's the deal. How many baby Christians are ready to walk their friend through that list of beliefs? How many baby Christians, five hours after becoming a Christian, could articulate that clearly? Probably none. So Jesus said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a play act. I'll give you a way of declaring your faith publicly that clearly states what you believe about Jesus Christ, what you believe about me, in a play act. We'll we'll mime your belief. We'll pantomime your belief. Does that make sense? Your belief. In baptism. So baptism doesn't do anything. You are declaring your faith with the play. Does that make sense? why scripture says whereby is baptism saves none of us but what we believed about baptism did okay microphone how could they um get baptized then before jesus died excuse me how could they get baptized then before jesus died because john the baptist was baptizing okay so even remember uh john i um okay i can't remember John gave a baptism of 
water, and repentance. Okay? Jesus gave a baptism of life and resurrection. So it was a different picture in the baptism. It was a different picture. So if you remember, John the Baptist, when he preached, John the Baptist, remember, remember this guy comes in wooly camel stuff. So here was the question, because it was a great question. So let me go back and ask the question out loud so you make sure what I'm answering. She says, okay, if baptism is about declaring your faith in Jesus Christ, that he lived, died, and rose again, why were people baptizing before Jesus even began his ministry? That, that's weird. That's a great question. Because John's baptism was not a baptism about the resurrection. It wasn't. It was a baptism of cleansing. It was a baptism of repentance. Okay? John the Baptist, when he comes, remember he has the camel skin, he's eating crickets, and I mean, it's nasty stuff. And the truth is, you probably repented just because John the Baptist had bad breath. But it, it was just scary. And what did John the Baptist preach? Scripture said, make plain the way of the Lord. Which is really interesting because Isaiah... Isaiah said, when Messiah is getting ready to come, the prophet will come saying, make plain the way of the Lord. Let the high places be brought low, let the crooked places be made straight, and prepare for Messiah. And that was the ministry of John the Baptist. And what he was saying was, look, 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 you're going you're gonna to have this, we're going to do a baptism of cleansing. This is a baptism that says, look, I'm renouncing all the sin in my life. I'm renouncing all the disobedience in my life. I'm getting my life clean and ready because I believe Messiah is getting ready to show up. And it was a baptism of repentance. Okay? I'm washing away my old life. I'm getting myself ready for when Messiah comes. That's what John's baptism was. Matter of fact, that's why... In the book of Acts, all the time, you see them running into people and they say, hey, have you believed on Jesus yet? And they say, well, no, no, I've just had John's baptism. I just got myself ready for Messiah. And they would declare their faith in Jesus. And what did they do next? They baptized them again because now they were baptizing them in the testimony of the resurrection. Okay? John's baptism was a preparatory one. Jesus' was the fulfillment. It's a great question. Okay? We're good? Okay. Hmm? Oh, okay. I, I, I see this over and back. Uh, is sprinkling the same thing? Yeah. It's play acting? How's that one for a good one? <laughs> okay, and you want the honest answer? Yeah. It's not the same thing. It's just not. Because, because, and here's, and I'm not trying to be an ornery, and I'm not trying to be, it's not the same thing. And the reason it's not the same thing is that when you sprinkle, when's the last time you went to a funeral? Anybody going to do a funeral ever? You get out to the grave, and they sprinkle a little dirt on them. What's going to happen next? It's not pretty, right? You don't sprinkle that you bury them. You bury them, Okay? And when you sprinkle, you're, you, you, you lose the, the play act. Does that make sense? You're, you don't stand and declare. You don't bury in death. You don't rise again in sprinkling. And the reality is, okay, so here we go. Okay, we're going to say it out loud. We'll let the chips fall where they may. And go ahead, write the emails. So, do you know why we started sprinkling? Do you know why the church started sprinkling? Where did that come from? Because here's what I'm going to tell you. If you go to Israel today, 
if you, someday maybe we'll take a trip over together. If you go to Israel today, all over Israel you can find first century baptismals. And the reason you can find them is, is because Israel is like stone everywhere. And so when they did a baptismal, they chiseled out in the stone the baptismal. It's still there today. And all over Israel, you can see first century, second century baptismals all over. And guess what they all, they're all kind of the size of bathtubs because they were baptizing adults. That's what they were doing. And they were baptizing by immersion. The early church did not have sprinkling. Matter of fact, the reality is I, sprinkling didn't come out. I don't think we get sprinkling until about the sixth or seventh century after Christ. How did we get there? How did we change that? What, what happened? Okay, what's the answer? Is that when we started doing babies and we thought it would be too cruel to dunk them? Yeah, so, yeah, so here's the deal, okay? We, here, here's, you ready for this, guys? And, and here, this, this needs to be a lesson to us. Go ahead and say it and then we'll go. I okay. think it's because uh, that's when uh, the Catholic Church started coming out. Mm-hmm. And that's when they started bringing out new doctrines. And one of the doctrines was that uh, they didn't believe in the immersion, and they thought that sprinkling can be the same as baptizing. So it came up with the Catholic Church. Okay. okay. So here's what we be, here's what began to be taught. Okay. And it's it's bad. Okay. And it was simply this: in order to go to heaven, okay, you have to be a member of our church. Well, how do you become a member of your church? What? Told you it was a bad doctrine. All right. <laughs> you become a member by being baptized. So guess what every parent began to ask? Well, what does that mean for my child? Well, your child has to be baptized. If you want your child to go to heaven, they've got to be a member of our church. And in order to be a member of our church, you've got to be baptized. Well, you try taking a couple of babies and, you know, for a while. And so guess what we came up with? And I shouldn't say we. Guess what this, the church came up with? Sprinkling. Sprinkling. There's not a passage in Scripture. There's nothing there that is traditions of men. And we changed Scripture because we changed doctrine. And... It's just not accurate. And again, you and I get back to that moment. just says, look, I, I don't care what tradition is. I don't care what did the Bible say. And, what it, and as you read Scripture, you will find that every single person who is ever baptized in the Bible made a public profession of faith in Jesus. There is never a baby baptized in the Bible. And they're not baptized by sprinkling. They're baptized by immersion. Period. In the Bible. So, and, and you and I get, you and I get to line up with that because that's what Scripture says. Okay. So send the emails. Go ahead. What else? We had another one. Jesus yeah. was the son. Jesus was a Messiah. So why did he have to be baptized? Yeah, it's a great question. Matter of fact, if you remember on that very day, John kind of asked him that question. John says, "Dude, what are you doing? I, I ought to be baptized by you. What am I, I'm, what am I doing baptizing you? That's, this is crazy." And Jesus says, hey, look, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm doing this to fulfill it. So what I believe Jesus was doing was two things on that day in which he was baptized. Because, and, and this ought to help you, Jesus wasn't getting baptized to get saved, right? Okay? So pretty good clue that baptism is never about saving. But here's what I think Jesus did on that day. Number one is, it's prophecy. Right? 
I'm living. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Isn't that powerful? You stop and think about it. Jesus was already declaring, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to live. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. So I think he did that as a picture to get you and I ready and to know that he knew from day one, this is what we're going and doing. The second thing is, I think he did it as an example. He said, look, this is what we're all going to do. This is the new plan and thing. We're all going to do this. We're all going to get you know baptized, declaring our faith. That's what we're going to do. So I probably don't need to do this, but I'm going to lead the way. And that's what leaders do. They lead the way. They go, I'll go first. Um, A question, Um, because when Jesus came up out of the water, it says the spirit landed on him like a dove. Is that also symbolic as when, as believers, we, you know, we uh, renounce sin, uh, we die to sin, we become alive in Christ, and then the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us? Is that the same thing or no? Ask that a different way. Give her back the microphone. Ask it a different way. Is there a different way to ask it? Okay, so the question was, here's Jesus, he gets baptized, here comes the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove. Does that relate to us? I think it's an interesting moment because what you've got to get in that moment, Old Testament believers, do they have the Holy Spirit or don't they have the Holy Spirit? Yes, no. Okay, matter of fact, grab your, let's go real, real quick, grab your Bibles, Acts. I think I've got this one right, so if I'm wrong, then... You can send me some more emails. Um, Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Here's what it says. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples just before he leaves. And he says, uh, um, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set down by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this Holy Spirit thing is a new thing with the departure of Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus said earlier on in his ministry, I will send you a comforter speaking of the Holy Spirit. Well, why is he having to tell them about the spirit that's coming? The answer is simple. They didn't have it. This is completely new. This idea that the Holy Spirit lives in our lives. As a matter of fact, if you go in the Old Testament, they do not have the Holy Spirit. The only people in the Old Testament who have the Holy Spirit end up being prophets and every once in a while a king. So that's why when King Saul sins, Scripture says, and the Spirit of God departed from him. Because in the Old Testament, he wasn't a seal of salvation. He isn't a promise that every believer gets. He was a gift given for a ministry. And when Saul turned his back on God, God said, okay, well, then you're not going to have the benefit of my spirit. When David sinned, remember one of the things he says in his prayer, he says, God, please don't take your spirit from me. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not a promise. He was not a seal. He was a gift given for ministry. But that changes because Jesus says, hey, look, when I leave, I'm going to send you a comforter. And every believer, every follower of me is going to receive the Spirit. This is a new day. This is a new thing that I'm doing. And that Spirit's not going to leave you when you sin. He's not going to take off when you blow it because he's going to become a seal that guarantees that you will go to heaven. This is a different day now, and the Spirit's ministry is changing in this thing called the church. Okay, So it's a new thing. So back to your question. I'll try and answer as best I can. Today, you and I, at the moment of salvation, Scripture says, Behold, all things become old. Behold, all things become new. And that's the Spirit 
instantly transforming our lives. So the minute I pray the sinner's prayer, the minute I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord, the Spirit comes in that moment, and there and there I am. Um, I don't necessarily think the baptism of Jesus is, you know, linked up with that. I think you're still probably a little bit in an Old Testament happening at that moment in time. Okay? I think that answered that. Okay? We're good? We're just opening more cans of worms, aren't we? Okay. I just think that baptism is an outward sign of an inward relationship. And a lot of times we have to remember that even as small children, if they die, they go to heaven until that time of accountability. Sure. So, you know, a lot of people feel that, oh, if my child's not baptized, they're not going to heaven. That's not true. It's not, it's not, it's not accurate and it's not biblical. It's just not. I don't know any other way to say it. But you're right. Baptism is just an outward sign of an in, inward decision that I make in my life. And baptism is not relevant until I've made the inward decision. Baptism doesn't count until I have done something in my heart. Do you mind if I open one more can of worms? Okay, okay. About... I just may not go into the can. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so is it okay today to still get circumcised? And if you choose to do that, um, is it best to do it at seven days like yeah. they did? You know what? I Here's the deal. Yes, it's absolutely fine to get circumcised. Matter of fact, I, I, I think... You know, in my personal opinion, which is totally not scriptural, I think it's probably a decent sanitary thing to consider uh, doing, you know, in the deal. But you've got to make your own choice about that. that but it, at the end of the day, what scripture is saying is this has absolutely nothing to do biblically. There's absolutely no biblical requirement or prescription that you need to or don't need to get circumcised on the deal. This now becomes a health decision for you within your life and a lifestyle decision for you in your life. It's interesting on the thing on the seventh day or eighth day. I, again, I think that was just a prescription that God gave because it just so happens, as best I understand, at least what I've been told is, that um, it's not until a child is about eight days old that they have develop, fully developed their ability for blood clotting. And so God was just actually being gracious to them and saying, let's, let, you know, let, let's wait a little longer until that child's ability to clot in blood is reached where it needs to be on the deal. But... I think they circumcise a lot of children right now like the next day in the hospital. But, you know, they've got whatever, little swabs to help the clotting and who cares. And, yeah. As long as the kid doesn't bleed to death, you know, we're good. And the truth for me is the younger you are, the better because then you don't remember. Okay. Good? Okay. What time? Time. Okay. All right. Let's see how much damage you can do in five minutes. All right. So uh, verse 23. Oh, no, let's go back to slavery. Were we endorsing slavery? Here's what you need to hear uh, on this issue. It is not endorsing slavery. So I'll give you the easy answer to it. The reason I say that and the reason you want to hear this out loud is you realize that during the Civil War, Southern pastors were using this scripture to say that the Bible endorsed slavery. They are preaching it from their pulpits. That's not what it is, and it's a complete miss in the culture. These guys were not people who had been stolen from their families and, and dragged away to become slaves. That's not what was happening here. These are what you and I would term today as indentured servants. In other words, they were people who had made a contract. Okay, And so what you would do in those days is you'd go to somebody because you didn't have the employment structure that you have today. You didn't have the economy going to... you got to remember, it's agrarian, it's 
it's agricultural. It's not manufactural. So you didn't go in and say, hey, can I build a Ford for you and, you know, work for 10, you know, 20, 30, 60 bucks an hour or whatever it is to turn a bolt. And Anyway, you contracted out in an agricultural society. So most often what you did is you went to a landowner and you said to them, look, I will be your slave for seven years. And if you do that, then I want you to give me a chunk of land. Remember in the Old Testament, okay, remember uh, when Jacob was in love with one of Laban's daughters, Rachel, what did he say to him? I will be your slave for seven years if you give me your daughter to be my wife. That's how you entered into contractual obligations within the day. And it was a little different today because you didn't have a lot of labor laws and all that stuff. And the truth is, if you went into that type of a contractual slavery, if you want to call that indentured servant, man, you were bound. You were just, you had to do pretty much what that person you had indentured yourself told you to do. But here's what you got to get. It was free will. It was a contractual commitment. And you were basically saying, I'll work for you for seven years. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll do that. At the end of the day, will you give me a piece of land? Will you give me the house that's on your property over here on the side? And you were swapping. Does that make sense? And seven years you were done, you were out. You'd fulfilled the contract. It was a contractual thing. This isn't, I went over to your homeland, I killed a bunch of people and dragged you across the ocean on a ship. That is not what this was. It did, and that was primarily a practice of the Romans. You know, the Romans would go in and conquer and then they'd lead the slaves back. That's not the context of this conversation. Okay, This is in the context of Jewish society and Jews you know, having contractual relationships of employment, okay? But again, it's not employment like today because for those seven years, you did whatever that guy said to do because that, you know, that's just what it was. You worked the farm, okay? We're good? All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll call it done. Hey, dear Lord, thank you for tonight. Thanks for questions and thanks for digging and Thanks for wrestling through. And God, I just want to pray again that that even if we went places that weren't comfortable or places that maybe were different than uh, what we learned as a child or how we were raised, that we would constantly come back to Scripture and say, what what was true? What was accurate? What was it that Scripture taught about this topic? And then we would just line up with that. that. That would become the standard and never the teachings of men. God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for people who are hungry to hear your word. God, we ask that you just make Easter something incredible around here, that scores and scores and scores of people all around Chandler and all around Gilbert would come sit in these purple chairs and hear about a resurrected Savior because we were silly enough uh, to egg them. But more than that, too, God, we also ask that thousands of children's lives in India would be changed because we, we just made Easter something really, really about making you famous. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.